All right, we want to welcome everyone tonight that's here in the congregation and those that are watching via Facebook Live. You know, I, I like what uh, was shared tonight out of both of the two that shared, Larry and also Candy. And you know, it is true that we're moving from just believing to faith, to knowing. You know, you can believe all day long that the sun's not going to shine and it's going to still shine. It's always shining. And then you can move into faith, and faith is when you are just not sure about the outcome. But the faith of the Son of God, which abides on the inside of us, in its highest level is knowing. Knowing that He is the health of my body as me, knowing that he is the wealth of my being as me, knowing beyond the shadow of a doubt that he is all in all, not just in us, but as us. We are the body of Christ, bone of his bone, we're flesh of his flesh, he's our health, he's our wealth, he's our all, he's everything. And that is what encompasses the knowing part. We just know that. You're not just by faith believing that I hope to be healed or walk in health, but you know that he is that as us. So you go from believing to exercising faith to the faith of the Son of God, which is even greater, and that is the knowing of who he is as us. Now, I want to go back and I want to just state a couple of things, just reiterating what we talked about several messages ago. When we were talking about, and this is so important, deciphering, as we're studying or reading the scriptures, we must be able to decipher what is an allegory, what is a parable, what is a metaphor, what is a proverb. We need to be able to decipher what it is that we are reading at that particular moment. Now, let me give you a little definition, even beyond what I gave you when we taught that. Because I've looked at some more things on this, and what we taught on that was 100% on. But let me add a few, let me decipher a little bit more for you. First of all, an allegory, we said, had to do with people. It's like teaching the allegorical reality of Cain and Abel, or Jacob and Esau, Abraham and Sarah. Those people, that's an allegory, see, because remember what Paul said in Galatians 4, talking about Abraham and his sons, he said they were an allegory. So an allegory is talking about people. So we've been looking at these stories in this series. This is number 58 tonight in this series. Started last July, I believe it was. And we've looked at a lot of allegorical realities, showing you how that we don't want to just stop with Abraham and Sarah. We don't want to just stop with Cain and Abel. Don't want to just stop with Abraham and the two sons. Don't want to just stop with Jacob and Esau. Let that be where it is and as it is, be that as it may, right? But we want to see how not only did those things happen, but they're happening within us. So uh, for the most part, now there's an exception to every rule, but for the most part, an allegory has to do where it's talking about people. And every character and every person from Genesis to Revelation is an allegory of whether we're living from the right side of the Christ mind, exercising the single eye, or whether we're living from the lower thoughts of, of the carnal, of being led by the five physical senses, or just being led by our natural intellect or our human reasoning. So that's an allegory. It's, it's depicting people, and every one of them depict either the right side of life or the left side of life. Then we talked about a parable. 
And I shared with you how a parable, Jesus only spoke in parables, but a parable for the most part. Now, there, I, I found one exception. So there's an exception to all of these a little bit. See, and we need to see that kind of gray matter there. But a parable, Jesus only taught in parables. He taught in no other way. So a parable is a story that points to something else. If you see a McDonald's sign, you don't stop at the sign, get a Big Mac. Because that sign acts as a parable to point you to McDonald's down the street or down the road. So a parable is a story that points to something, something that, uh, uh, something that Jesus was giving, like the parable of a, a certain king and his son was getting married and, and he sends out people to bid people to come to the wedding and one guy came in there without a wedding garment. It doesn't give anyone's name there. So that's a parable. The parable of the prodigal doesn't give anyone's name there. A parable of the lost coin doesn't give a name there. A parable of the sheep doesn't give a name there. However, I did find one parable, and there may even be a couple others, because remember I said there's an exception to every rule as we look at these uh, decipher, you know, allegory and parable. When it talked about the rich man and Lazarus, and a lot of people use that and say, well, you know, some are going to hell and they're going to suffer eternal conscious torment, and they'll use that, and that's a parable. It specifically says it's a parable. So that's one instant where a parable was used with a name, Lazarus, the rich man and Lazarus. That's one example. So there's an exception to every rule. And then a metaphor is one word, generally. Again, generally. Sometimes it could be two words. But for example, water points to the word. Trees point to people. That's a metaphor. Using one word, generally, and it, it metaphorically points to people or it points to different things, usually contained within one word, and then the proverb, like we looked at in Proverbs 18, where, remember, Ezekiel said, uh, don't say this proverb that the fathers ate the sour grapes and set the children's teeth on edge, but say this, the soul that sins himself, he shall die himself or embrace death himself. So who was that to? Who was that proverb to in Ezekiel? Uh, that proverb was to the nation of Israel, but how many know it was to them but for us? So a proverb is to all people. A proverb would be to all people. And uh, like, for example, we have the book of Proverbs. What does that give you? It gives you wisdom. For what? For just the nation of Israel? For all people, you see. So I just wanted to kind of clarify that just a little bit. I'm not even sure why. I just felt to do that. Uh, I did have a phone call this morning. Someone was asking me some of these things, and maybe I'm clarifying it for them, perhaps. But, uh, you know, I don't want there to be any misunderstanding. I want to be able to give documentation for everything that I can give documentation for. Otherwise, I don't want to teach it. I don't want to teach it. I want to be able to show you where I came up with that stuff, where I got it, you see. Yeah. Now, the last couple of weeks or the last couple of sessions, because I, uh, I didn't miss a Sunday, but the last couple of sessions, we talked about Judas Iscariot. And what did he do? But he betrayed Jesus. Remember, Jesus said, to whom I give the sop to, he's the one that's going to betray me. And then once he gave the sop to Judas Iscariot, he said, do it quickly. So he was giving Judas the go-ahead to do that. Okay? And then we talked about the fact that once Judas looked that scenario over, instead of realizing from the right side that Jesus was the one that gave him the okay to go ahead and do that, to betray him, he begins to think from the left side 
And what does he do? He gets all remorseful and he goes out and he throws down the 30 pieces of silver and he hangs himself. Now, if all of these things are happening within us, they have to be happening within us in a positive tone. So I, I gave you two different ways about the throwing down the 30 pieces of silver. I talked about the fact that 30 means maturity, means sonship, means right side. And so he, in his own temple, in his own being, he threw down the right side. And he did what? In doing that, he hung himself from living from the right side. That's what he did. Now, that, that can kind of be taken a little bit on the negative side. So I did a little more research on that and say, I'm never afraid to come back and say, well, it wasn't quite that right. Let's look at it this way. This, this is a better way of looking at it. So positively, I saw then that Judas Iscariot, when he threw down the 30 pieces of silver, three plus zero is three, Three is new life, three is resurrection. When he threw down the 30 pieces of silver, remember I said to the ancients, silver meant emotions. So inside of himself in his temple, he throws down, he's beginning to get some light here, and he throws down that 30 pieces of silver. In other words, he says to religion, stick it where the sun doesn't shine. Stick it where the sun doesn't shine. I don't want you ministering to my emotions or my ego anymore. And what does he do? He goes out and he hangs himself, meaning what? When you hang yourself, you put a noose around your neck and you cut off, you choke off the airflow. And, and really what happens medically is they say you really end up having a stroke. And we found out that uh, in the Aramaic where it says that Lot's wife turned into a pillar of salt, the Aramaic says she suffered a deadly stroke from looking back. And so the way I brought that out was you, when you hang yourself, you put a noose around your neck, and the neck is the bridge between the higher thoughts and the lower thoughts. And so what did he do? He went to religion. He threw down within himself. He said, you're not going to minister to my ego. You're not going to minister to my emotions anymore. And he throws that down, and three plus zero is light, new life. He gets new light and new life. Now, this is how it's happening in us. And he chokes off the thoughts from the left side. He gives them no opportunity to live through his mind. He gives them no opportunity. So you see, I'd rather look at it that way than he goes out and literally hangs himself and all of that. And I'm not saying that, I'm not taking away that that didn't happen literally, but I'm simply saying, what is that? An allegory. So if it's happening in us, we don't want it to be a gory allegory. <laughs> we want it to be a, an allegory and keep the allegory where it needs to be and see it as happening within us. Thank God we can trick the left side. Thank God we can choke off the left side. Thank God we're just not at the mercy of lower thoughts, thoughts that come as a result of what we see and what we feel or the yeah. five senses. But thank God we are the ones that rule and we can come over here to the right side and we can engage ourselves into some meditation that will cause us then to take no thought from the left side. Now, then last week we talked about Peter and we talked about Peter's denial. And we found out where he denied Jesus three times. And Jesus had prophesied this to him previously because once, you know, the new day came, after, remember, after he had denied three times, the cock crowed, and when does a rooster crow? Is at the break of dawn in the morning? I told you about my scenario about my bedroom was right beside our chicken house. And lo and behold, when I'd want to sleep in in the morning, 
that old rooster, I think we had two or three, they began to crack it on to begin to go cockle doodle do. And I wanted to tell my parents, butcher the suckers. <laughs> I don't want to hear those roosters cockle doodle doing and waking me up so early in the morning. I wanted to sleep in. But anyhow, once Peter realized, once the cock crew, three is the number of what? New life. Once the cock crowed, if you will, new life came and Peter remembered that Jesus had told him the cock's going to crow on the third denial and it's exactly what took place and it is, it is exactly what happened. And it says that when the new light three after the third denial, when he came to the end of himself and he realized Jesus had already prophesied this was going to happen, when the new day came, what did he do? He went out and he wept bitterly. He was repentant for the denial of Jesus. Now, what I want to talk about tonight... Let's go to John chapter 20. I want to talk about Thomas. Now, my husband's name was Thomas, and it used to really irritate him when people would find out his name or knew his name and say, are you a doubting Thomas? He had that happen many, many times. and used to just frustrate him to no end. A doubting Thomas, what is that supposed to mean? And after we get through this message tonight, and I know some of you heard this. I did this probably 15 years ago. But I've so revamped it, you'll never know it's the same message. <laughs> Thank God. I've upgraded it. There's been a new upload within me concerning Thomas, and I felt that, you know, it would be a good idea as we go through Judas and, and then Peter, it would be really good to just add Thomas into this. And once you hear this about Thomas, you will never think of Thomas as a doubting Thomas. Now, his name was really, and he was really known to the disciples as Didymus. His name was Thomas Didymus. Thomas Didymus, D-I-D-Y-M-U-S. And Didymus means twin. Now, why in the world would Didymus, Thomas Didymus, why would his name mean twin? Did he have a twin? Uh, yes and no. He didn't have a twin in the natural. And we're going to talk about twins, how scientifically how twins come forth. But the main thing about being a twin is, and I'm getting ahead of myself here, is you have the same DNA as your twin. Even if you're not identical, you have the same DNA as your twin. But now notice here in John chapter 20, and I'll get back to the DNA and the twin and all of that a little bit later, because it's connected with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in a different way than the way I taught it previously. And thank God for revelation. Thank God for progressive revelation and understanding because we can experience the reality of these things in such a greater way once it's been quickened to us, and, and we really understand these things. But in John chapter 20, beginning with verse 19, and let me give you the setting of this. Jesus, at this time, had already been crucified. He had already been removed from the cross. After his resurrection, he then appears to his disciples, and, and in verse 19, when he first appeared to his disciples, Thomas was not there yet. And they were scared to death. I mean, they were scared. Oh, here's the, what, a ghost? What? So they were scared. And what he says to them in verse 19, and remember, Thomas wasn't here at the time. It was just the disciples. So he said, when he noticed they were scared, he said, peace be unto you. And what does he do? But he shows his hands and his feet. But now listen, here's the clincher. These guys that Jesus appeared to first showed his hands, showed his feet, showed his side. All they were after was a physical appearance. Yeah. 
That's all they wanted to see rather than discern the spiritual aspect of this that Jesus had just experienced after his crucifixion and after the cross. I mean, it's not even sure that they realized at first that it was the Lord or not. They weren't even sure about that. So let's read this, and let's keep in mind, this is after the crucifixion. This is after he was taken after, off the cross. This was after his resurrection. Thomas was not here yet until we get down to about verse 26, because then eight days later, Jesus physically appears to all of them, all 12 of them. So look at verse 19 of John 20, and I am reading from the New King James, in case it doesn't sound exactly like your King James, if you're looking at it from the King James Version. Then the same day at even, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be unto you. Verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now let me just kind of throw this out at you. It won't cost you any more tonight. But when he said, when he breathed, it just means to generate spirit that's already in them. And when he said receive, it wasn't like spirit came from the outside and jumped in them all of a sudden. Receive means to believe and to experience that which has always been within you. Now that's just a little added thing there. It has nothing to do with this message per se. Verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Verse 24, now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. Verse 25, the other disciples therefore said to him, said to Thomas, we have seen the Lord. So he said, this is Thomas now saying, unless I see his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into, and that's a key word, into his side, I will not believe. Then there was an eight-day span here. It says in verse 26, and after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them this time. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Now, as I said, most have taught Thomas in a negative way. He's got a bad rap, just like Judas did and just like Peter did. They all got bad raps. But once you see the truth of what I'm going to share with you, what you will begin to see is that the disciples were after simply a physical appearance of Jesus, like many today. Yep. Like many today. Say it again, like many today. Yeah, just looking for him to split the eastern sky, come back on a white horse, tooting a golden trumpet, and make everything right. Mm -hmm. They were looking merely for a physical appearance of Jesus. Thomas Didymus, the twin, was looking for something spiritual. He wasn't just looking for a physical manifestation. Now, if you go back to John 11, hang on to John 20, but go back to John 11, and let me answer this question from John chapter 11, verses 14 through 16. 
And here Jesus had received word from Mary and Martha or from someone else that they had told to go get Jesus because Lazarus was very sick and he was nigh unto death. And at this time, the disciples were very concerned about Jesus' safety because the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus. So they were really concerned. And so Jesus, what does he do? He sends the disciples to the grave of Lazarus ahead of time. And look what it says in verse 16. This is now what Thomas said unto them. He was with them. He was with the other disciples. Jesus sends the disciples, all of them, ahead to the grave of Lazarus. And look in verse 16 what Thomas says to the rest of the disciples. Remember, they're looking for a physical appearing. He's looking for something spiritual, a spiritual appearing that will change his life. And so he says to the rest of them in verse 16 of John 11, Let us go also that we may die with him. In other words, the disciples were willing to go where he was. They were willing to go where Lazarus was. They were willing to go where Jesus was. But listen, this guy by the name of Thomas Didymus, which means the twin, had a different revelation. And he saw past the Lazarus situation here, and he sees, listen, that Christ Jesus, I'm going to clarify what that means, that Christ Jesus is the resurrection. Or in other words, the Christ part of Jesus, there, there is a Christ part of Jesus that is the resurrection. And Thomas sees that, and he knew that Jesus must die, but he also is getting a revelation that all of humanity must experience a death. Now the other disciples just wanted to see the miracle of raising Lazarus. First of all, they just wanted to see Jesus' physical body. And then secondly, they just wanted to see the miracle of someone being raised from the dead. And let me just throw this out. This won't cost you anything either. Come on. I know the Bible uses the phrase raising the dead and says we'll raise the dead, but no one's dead. <laughs> no one's ever dead. So what is it doing? What, what is raising the dead metaphorically? point to, since no one is dead, it's just reuniting the body with the spirit that left. Yeah. You know? So, in other words, this is what the disciples wanted to see. They wanted to see the miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead as they believed it. Now, Thomas here realized that this picture of the raising, if you want to call it that, of the dead, or of Lazarus, was a picture of the death, the burial, and the resurrection. In other words, he saw beneath the surface. He saw, and he heard words beneath the words. He tapped into the book within, the esoterics, the book within, and wanted to identify with something spiritual rather than just seeing Jesus with the five physical senses or the eyes on the top of our head. He knew that there were... Now, can you see, why is he called a doubting Thomas? Because everyone still believes that Thomas just wanted to see what the rest of the disciples wanted to see, just a man appearing that had, been, had, had died. And actually, I just kind of thought about that today. Jesus didn't really die. I mean, his body did. So why does it say he was quickened to life? I'm going to let you hang on that one. <laughs> Why does it say he was quick and raised and seated when he never died? He was down preaching to people. 
Hello? In a sense, you know, I believe what it was was, you know, the words of Jesus were echoing throughout eternity and people were being released from their bondages even though Jesus' body was in the grave. So anyhow, i just give you that to think on a little bit. Because listen, I'm not trying to get you to believe exactly like I believe. I'm just trying to stir you up to think a little bit. So think on that one. Jesus was quickened from death to life when he hadn't died. Well, his body did. And so, yes, his body was quickened, absolutely. But you know what? We need to look at some of these things a little differently. Do you know what? If we're going to raise the dead, as the scripture says, we have to get past the idea that they're dead. (laughs) Hello? And we need to realize that, you know what? Their spirit is always around. And it's just uniting the spirit with the body. No, that's, I said just. <laughs> just uniting the spirit with the body as if uh, just like you can snap your fingers and it'll happen. Well, not necessarily. But I, I do think that we are being quickened in our understanding. We're beginning to see some things differently. But I, I got completely off track. So, so, so Thomas was relating to the book within. And so when Thomas said here in verse 16 of John 11, let us go also, notice, that we, we, may die with. Now, the word with insinuates identification. But the problem is, and this is what Thomas was seeing. I'm going to show you more as we go through this. The problem has been that we believe that we were in Adam, and Jesus had to go to the cross to get rid of the old man to make us a new man, as long as we believed it. But that's not what happened. We came here upright. We came here saved, in one sense. We came here objectively. We were saved. We were holy. We were righteous. We were blessed with all things. We were given all things that pertain to life and godliness. But listen, we don't want to stay in the objective part. We want to experience it and walk in it subjectively. So this word identification where he said, let us go that we may also die with him, that's an identification, an accounting term, or an identification term that has to do with us identifying with what was really crucified, which was what? All of the lies of religiosity. What was really buried. What was really dead. What was really quickened. Something had to be quickened within us. What was quickened within us? The truth that we were always from before the foundation saved, holy, righteous, blameless. See, and and this is what, I'm going to show it to you, this is what Thomas wanted to see. And this is what he was saying when he said, let us go also that we may die with him. Now, let me say it this way. We need to understand that back in John 20, if you want to flip back there, or you don't have to, I'm not going to read. In John 20, when Jesus first appeared to the disciples, Thomas was not there. And in the last verse that we read, eight days later, Jesus appears again, and he says, Peace unto you, and Thomas was there at that time. So in John 20, listen, in John 20, Thomas remembered what he saw concerning Lazarus in John 11, where he saw that the raising of Lazarus from the so-called dead was a picture of the death, the burial, and the resurrection. And I don't believe that he was seeing the picture of the death, burial, and resurrection the way we used to see the picture of the death, burial, and resurrection. I believe he was seeing the death, the burial, the resurrection as a picture of the way we now see the death, burial, and resurrection. 
In other words, Thomas wanted to see the marks on Jesus, but there are some key words there that we have to look at. Because, listen, he wanted to, listen, he wanted to, what did Thomas want to do? He said, I believe if I can put my hands into. Who was it tonight said, I think it was Larry, you said, believing in. Do you know that that word in is the word into in the Greek? It's not just believing upon or believing in, but it's believing into, which is a progressive work of understanding. So he wanted to put his hands inside of Jesus because into denotes getting into the inner workings of the death, the burial, and the resurrection and really seeing what that accomplished and what it really did and how it didn't make us a different person other than changing our awareness. That causes us to experience, you know, uh, the new man, but we've always been a new man. And so, so what this is saying is when Thomas said, I want to put my hands, my finger in and my hands into his side, into means purpose and intent. Did you hear that? Into, to put his hand into the side of Jesus. Into means purpose and intent. It means to get into the inner working and the inner revelation of that. Now, if you go back to John chapter 14, John chapter 14, because I want us to see something a little bit more about Thomas here. And some have used this here in John 14, especially verses 1 to 5, to say that Thomas, this, this Didymus guy, this twin guy, who wasn't a twin at all, with some natural physical brother, they used this to say that Thomas was misled and he didn't really understand the Lazarus situation and the raising of Lazarus. But look what it says in verse 5, because Thomas said something here. He's saying something to the Lord, and he says in verse 5, Lord, we, remember, Jesus said in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I wouldn't have told you. You know, I'm going to a place and you can go with me. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what Jesus said here in John 14 beginning with verse 1, and in verse 5, Thomas says, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? And then in verse 6, Jesus responds, and he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, notice something here, very important. Jesus is answering the question of Thomas when Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus comes back in verse 6 and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But do you notice that he's very calm? Jesus answers this question, and there's a reason, of Thomas very calmly. Then Peter comes up, and he says, show us the Father in verse 8. And Jesus gets a little fussy with him. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long and you still haven't seen the Father? And so Jesus spends six verses answering Philip. And as you read this, you can see that he was pretty adamant with Philip, a little fussy with Philip. But with Peter, or with Thomas, excuse me, with Thomas, he was very calm. Why? What is the reasoning for his reaction? Calmly? with Thomas, a little sarcastic with Philip. 
simply because he knew that Thomas was asking a question behind a question. In other words, Philip was looking at the natural, and Jesus knew this, while Thomas was looking at the spiritual. Thomas wanted to be identified with the Lord of glory. And so he answered, Jesus answered by just stating when Thomas says, where's the way? We don't know the way. He says, I'm the way. And so that enabled Thomas to begin to realize that he had to have his life hid, esoteros, hid with God in Christ. And Thomas realized that the only way, he realized that the only way to see the Father was to get on the inside. In other words, and here's the key, in other words, you will not see the Father by just looking at Jesus alone. But you will only see the Father not from the physical perspective of Jesus. That's why I've said a lot lately, Jesus never, Jesus the man never wanted us to worship him. He simply wanted us to follow him in the sense that we do what he has told us to do. And what did he tell us to do? You can look at the Beatitudes. You can look at chapter 5, chapter 6 of, of Matthew, and you'll see exercise the single eye. Involve yourself in meditation. Slip into the mind of Christ. Take no thought. Five times he said, take no thought in Matthew chapter 6. One for every one of your five senses. So in other words, listen, you're not going to see the Father, and Thomas got this revelation, I'm not going to see the Father just by looking at the physical appearance of Jesus. But I'm going to be able to see the Father when I can get in the inside and see that Jesus did nothing. You know, so, so many people are asking Jesus to do this, that, and the other, and he said, I can't do nothing. <laughs> Jesus, will you heal us? And Jesus, will you bring us money? And Jesus, and Jesus said, I can do nothing. I only do what I see my Father do or the Christ consciousness. I only say what I hear my Father say by the Christ consciousness. And so we have this man, Thomas here, who tried to tell the disciples about what he saw at the resurrection of Lazarus. He was trying to relate, and you can't make some, you can't relate a revelation to people. No, you can't. That's why I'm not here to get you to believe what I believe, but to get you to think, to get you to turn within yourself, to get you to discern what Thomas was discerning and what he wanted to experience. So just as Thomas tried to tell the disciples about what took place at the burial and the resurrection of Lazarus, He was trying to help the disciples see Jesus as the way and not just a physical man that walked the shores of Galilee performing all of these miracles. He wanted the disciples to look beyond Jesus the man and see the Christ that Jesus was. And he knew that if they would see the Christ that Jesus was, then they would experience something much deeper than what they could experience by just walking with Jesus, talking with Jesus, watching him raise a person physically. It would just have stopped at that physical manifestation or miracle. So then Jesus gives him a little bit more. Once once Thomas begins to see, he asked, what is the way? And Jesus said, I'm the way. 
And then because Thomas was hungry to go all the way, Jesus said, oh yes, and I'm the truth and the life. I'm not just the way, but I am the truth and I am the life. And at that moment, Peter began to experience a deeper revelation of oneness. The others were still in duality. All they wanted to see was a man separate from them, the man Jesus who walked the shores of Galilee. They were in total duality. But you see, this is why, this is why that they said, or Philip said, show us the Father, why they were in duality. They were still separating themselves, you see, from the Christ by just looking at the physical physique of a, a man that, you know, possibly was six foot, blue eyes, whatever. And they were just focusing upon that whatsoever. Now, how many people read then John 14, 1 through 3 on the surface level? In my Father's house are many mansions, if it were not so, I would have told you. And they think of what? Physical mansions. They think of a sky deity coming back. They think of physical mansions. They're just like Philip was. And the rest of the disciples were. Now, another interesting thing, another interesting fact for us to note, is that after the Lord appeared to the disciples in John 20 and verse 26, when Thomas was not there yet, and then he appeared the second time eight days later. I don't think that Jesus would have appeared, listen, eight days later, if it were not for Thomas's desire to know him. I don't think he'd appeared that second time after the eighth day. If he, if he did not know and see the desire that Thomas had to get into him, the inner workings, of the death, burial, resurrection. So on the eighth day, it said there that he appeared. Now, eight is what? The number of new beginning. And you see, the scripture says that Thomas waited patiently because he wanted to see the new man that came forth from the grave. The new man that came forth from the grave depicted by Lazarus points to the new man that came from the tomb in Jesus. But now, let's be careful how we hear that. What is the new man where we are concerned? The new man is that when Jesus was quickened in his body, raised and seated at the right of the Father, that was the revelation to us that we have always been a new man. So you see, Thomas wanted to experience all that he was beginning to realize even before the raising of Lazarus. And so again, that is why I believe that Jesus came Eight days later, otherwise I don't believe that he would have come eight days later. Now, let me give you a scripture on that. If you'll go to Hebrews 9 and verse 28. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 28. Because guess what? He comes, he comes for those. Hebrews chapter, what did I say? 9, verse 28. He comes only for those who look for him. Now, there's a whole lot of people today looking for him to split the sky and come back. He ain't never coming that way. He's not coming that way. But he is looking. He is going to come and is coming now and continues to come for those who are looking for his coming in the right place and from the right perspective. So Hebrews 9, I think it's verse 28, if I'm not mistaken, that I want. That's not it. Hebrews, what did I say? Oh, I'm in chapter 10. Well, that's not going to work. Hebrews chapter 9. And verse 28, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. Now listen, and unto them that look 
for him. Shall he appear the second time, not out of the sky, not out of the sky. It doesn't say a second coming. You won't find a second coming anywhere in the scriptures. But for those who look for him, shall he appear the second time without mistaken identity, without sin unto salvation. So that's why I believe he came eight days later, because Thomas was truly looking for him. And he came that second time, eight days later. The first group of guys just wanted to see him come physically. They just wanted to see his appearing from the tomb and so forth. Thomas wanted to see something much deeper, and he did see something much deeper. Now, let me give you another scripture in Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12 and verse 2. So Jesus came eight days later because Thomas wanted to see him, and he comes to those who look for him. Now, again, why did he come for Thomas? Obviously, he didn't come for the other ones. Why did he come eight days later? He came for Thomas simply because, listen, Thomas wanted to see his twin. Thomas wanted to see his twin. Thomas wanted to see the spiritual revelation of Jesus Christ, not the man, but he wanted to see the revelation of Jesus. Now, don't misunderstand. We, we men, when we worship Christ, we're worshiping him, yes, in one sense. And we're worshiping the Father because they're one. But listen, there is just that physical aspect of him where he said, I can't do anything. Don't ask me nothing. I can do nothing. But it's the Christ consciousness that is within me. So the reason why Jesus came was because someone in that bunch was looking for him to come. And they had the revelation of getting into the inner working of why Jesus came in the first place. And in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, it says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Now listen to this. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So in other words, there was a joy, according to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, knowing that when he went to the cross that he was going to reproduce, not another man, but he was going to reproduce the Christ in all mankind. In fact, it was something that was done from before time, but Jesus knew that when he went to the cross and in his resurrection, he was going to reveal that all of humanity is the twin of Jesus Christ. And, and what does that have to do with? What does twin have to do? If you look it up, Google it if you want to, it, it talks about the sperm coming into the egg, yeah. and then there is a split, and then there are twins, but the twins have the, I don't care if they're paternal, maternal, identical, they have the same DNA as their brother or sister, whatever. So Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, knowing that a people were going to come to the realization that they have always been a twin of Christ Jesus, that they have always been one in him. Now, go back to John chapter 20. Let me read something else here, take it a little bit further. John chapter 20, verses 27 and 28. And this is where it uses that word into. I want to give you some more definition for into. Thomas wanted to get into Christ. 
He wanted to see something about Jesus, listen, that was not observable by looking at his physique. He wanted to get into the experience of who he was a twin with, of whom he had the same DNA with, you see. So in verses 27 and 28 of John 20, it says there, Then saith he to Thomas, reach hither, this is Jesus now, reach your finger, behold my hands, stick your finger in my scars of my hands, the wounds of my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and listen, and thrust it into my side. Thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas, when he did that, he got a revelation, and he said, O-M-G. <laughs> my Lord and my God, O-M-G. Now, in these verses, in these verses, Thomas did not just touch his side. He touched something deep within. And listen to the meaning of into. I give you part of it already, but let me give you some more. In the Greek, when it says thrust it into your hand, into my side, into is 1519 in the Greek. And it means a point of place, time, or purpose. And it also means far more exceeding than what? Than just the physical. And it means, it also means far more exceeding, and it means intent. Get into the logos of the word. Get into the intent of the death, burial, and resurrection. And it also means to be of one mind, and it also means to set at one again in your awareness. Now, I add in your awareness. It doesn't say that in the Greek. It says to set at one again. In other words, to again come to the realization You once knew it, but then you got amnesia and you forgot it because of embracing religion. So I want to set you at one again, Thomas. I want your awareness to be set again as to who you were from before the foundation. So Thomas reaches into the wound, the death, the crucifixion, and so forth, and he experienced the revelation of the life. He experienced the way, the death, the truth, the burial, and the life, the resurrection, and the seating, the quickening, the raising, and the seating. Why? Because he reached into Jesus. And as they faced one another at that time, I believe it was the deepest revelation that Thomas had ever experienced. And listen, not only had he reached into Jesus, the intent, the purpose, coming at one mind, He then saw him face in to face. Meaning what? You know, it says we see him face to face, but it's in to face in to face. It means that we see with the very eye that the Father sees with. Now, as we know, numbers have, have great meaning in the scriptures. And what we see here is a pattern. Like, for example, and I'm not going to have you turn there, but you can write it down if you want to. Matthew 10 2, 3, and 4, Thomas is listed as number 7 in the list of disciples. Number 7. And this was the order in Matthew 10, 2, 3, and 4. This was the order of their calling. But now listen, in John 21, 2, after the resurrection, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples, 
And the order there is number one, Simon Peter, and number two, Thomas Didymus, the twin. So he goes from number seven in the calling order to number two in the order simply because he got the revelation of the intuness and the oneness that he had always had. So, so here Thomas is placed right up there. Why? Because he understood the mysteries that were hidden to others about the death, the burial, and the resurrection. He's number two there. And two is the number of what? Two is the number of witness. What is a witness? What is a true witness? If there was an accident out here and uh, someone came in and told us how it happened, we would not be a true witness. But if we saw it, we'd be a witness of a witness. And we could take the stand and we could tell them exactly what took place. So Thomas became a true witness of a witness. Now, back to some more meaning of his name. Thomas Didymus means twin, as I've already stated. Same DNA as Christ. It means double. Who would have figured? It means twice. And it means again, listen, but it means again, something revealed again when he reached into, remember into, one of the meanings was again becoming aware. So it means again becoming aware as Christ. That's what Thomas Didymus means. Again, and we found out that one of the meanings of into was to set at one again, where? In the awareness. So he was set at one again in his awareness that he was one as Christ. Now, in Song of Solomon, go back to Song of Solomon. I'm going to close with this. Song of Solomon. What we see in Song of Solomon is a love story between a king, Christ Jesus, and the church. The church is what? The church is his queen. And in chapter 4 and verse 2, We've done a lot of teaching in the past on Song of Solomon, but in chapter 4 and verse 2, he describes what was true of her in spirit. Remember, he said, there's no spot in you, and she probably had spots all over the place. She probably had character flaws all over the place, if you're going to judge by appearances, by the five senses from the left side. And he says in chapter 4 and verse 2 of Song of Solomon, he's telling her what is true of her in spirit. Why was he talking about what was true of her in spirit before it become a walk? Because you have to, for the most part, if you're going to consistently walk in this, you have to know what's true of you in spirit first before it can become a consistent walk. Yeah. Doesn't mean you can't walk it from time to time, but it's here today and gone tomorrow. But to experience truth that remains in your walk, you have to first of all know you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You are holy. You were saved. You're without blame from before time. You have to know that objective side. And then when that has been quickened within you, then you can experience walking in it or the subjective side. Okay? So that's what he's telling her. That's what he's telling her. What is true of her in spirit? So that what? So that that can become her consistent walk. Not just a walk once in a while, but her consistent walk. Now, if you look in chapter 6, chapter 6, in chapter 6, the Shulamite is speaking to the daughters of Jerusalem. After the daughters of Jerusalem, because remember, they were persecuting the Shulamite. Shulamite. Who's your beloved any better than ours? Who's Christ Jesus better than Buddha? Who's Christ Jesus better than Krishna? That's what the daughters of Jerusalem were asking, the Shulamite. They saw something in her, and they were jealous. 
Who's your Christ Jesus? Who's your king any better than Krishna or Buddha or Muhammad? But then they begin to see it in her walk, because she knew who she was, beyond the shadow of a doubt. They begin to see it in her walk, and so they go to her in chapter 6. Look what it says in verse 1. They go to her and say, "Mm, I guess we were wrong. We want to seek him too. We want to experience what you're experiencing in your walk. So verse 1 of chapter 6 says, and this is the daughters asking the Shulamite, Whither is thy beloved gone, O thou fairest among women? Whither is thy beloved turned aside, that we may seek him with thee? So the Shulamite was such a manifestation, and remember, awareness is manifestation. Her awareness was so out of the right side, the Christ mind. She was so seeing with a single eye that it changed. Manifestation came in her walk, and they said, Oh, we better not ask her anymore if, you know, her king is, you know, what's greater than her king? Isn't our king better than hers? We better not ask her that anymore because now we're seeing a manifestation in her walk, and so now we want to seek your beloved as well. That's what's going on. Now look at verse 2 then. My beloved is gone down into his garden. Now let me just submit this to you. Where's the garden? Where's the vineyard? It's the feminine principle of us. So my beloved has gone down into the garden. That's what's being said there. I'm not thinking out of my five senses or mere intellect or human reasoning because I've slipped into the mind of Christ and my beloved has gone into the garden. And so that's why I'm manifesting what I'm manifesting. So my beloved has gone down into his garden to the bed of spices to feed. How many know he feeds off of us when these two become one? Where the food Christ eats when the two become one experientially. So my beloved has gone down into his garden to the bed of spices to feed in the gardens and to gather lilies. Verse 3, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He feedeth among the lilies. Verse 4, thou art beautiful, O my love, as Terza, comely or beautiful as Jerusalem, terrible or as awesome as an army with banners. So what is that saying there in verse 4? He calls her city of peace. He calls her the city. This is where we get peace. It's when we slip in, bring the thoughts of Christ, the seed of God, we intercourse with the Christ mind, the seed, sperma of God, bring it over here to our awareness, then, you see, the city begins to experience. Jerusalem, which means peace, is experienced by us. And that's what it's saying in verse 4. Verse 5, Turn away thine eyes from me, for they have overcome me. Thy hair is as a flock of goats that appear in Gilead. So, when she talks in verse 5 about her eyes, of course that points to vision. How far can you see? That's what God said to Abraham. You can have as far as you can see. You can have all that territory. So I say tonight, how far can we see? Are we waiting to die and go to heaven? Are we waiting for a rapture? Are we waiting for this, that, or that? How far can we see into, how far can we believe into him, as Larry was saying earlier? So the eyes refer then to insight, to the eyes of our understanding being enlightened, And the phrase there that says, for they have overcome me, what that is saying is she has overcome any obstacle that was between him and her. She's overcome. It's kind of like the arachnoid, that that veil that's between the left and the right. That veil that's getting thinner and thinner as the two become one. In other words, she's overcome everything of the left side. She's overcome. Now, verse 6 then. Verse 6 then, thy teeth are as a flock of sheep 
And this is why I wanted to read this. I took all of those verses to get to verse 6. Thy teeth are as a flock of sheep which go up from the washing, whereof every one beareth twins. And there is not one barren among them. So the teeth here, see, the teeth here, as we chew the word, that's meditation, spontaneous and purposeful meditation. As we ponder, contemplate on the truths that are already within us, written upon our heart and upon our mind, as we contemplate and meditate, what are we doing? We're chewing the cud. Meditate means to chew the cud. So, and when we chew the cud consistently enough, what happens, as it says there, there's not one barren among us. We are, we are bearing, not reproducing, he reproduced it, but we are bearing the fruit that remains. We're bear, we are bearing the fruit of Christ. And then verse 7, as a piece of pomegranate are thy temples within thy locks. Now the temples speak of what? Where are your temples? Well, they're on either side of your head. And I think I could rightfully liken the left temple to the left side the right temple to the right side. I don't know, maybe I can't, but I'm just doing it anyhow. You got a temple over here on the left side. It can designate or be a metaphor for thinking out of the left side, but you got a temple on the right side that you can sing, think with the Christ mind. Now, it also says as a piece of pomegranate. What, what is the reality of a piece of pomegranate fruit? You have to lay it open. You have to lay it open to get any of the goods. In other words, this that we're talking about, and this is what Thomas wanted, he wanted to get into and lay it open. He wasn't satisfied with just Jesus' physical appearance and that he came out of the tomb. He wanted to get into the inner workings of the death, burial, resurrection, the crucified. He wanted to see crucified, crucified with, dead, dead, died, died with, buried, buried with, quickened, raised, seated, quickened with, raised with, seated with. He wanted to see how that all of that <coughs> swallowed up and absorbed and revealed the lies religion fed to us about who we weren't. And he wanted to get into the inner workings that the quickening, raising, and seating revealed the truth of who we had always been from before the foundation of the world. And so what was he doing? The pomegranate, laying it open. That's where the goods are. He wanted to lay open the death, burial, resurrection. He didn't want to just see, like the rest of the disciples, Jesus in this physical realm. He wanted to get the revelation. He wanted the realization of the inside. He wanted the spiritual insideness, if that's a word, of the revelation of Christ and not just stop with the man of Galilee or Jesus, the son of man, because he said, I can do nothing. It's the Christ in me and as me that doeth these things. That's the thing that must be focused on. Thomas wanted to experience his oneness with the Christ rather than see an individual that was separate from him in Jesus the man. He wanted to see, and the death, burial, resurrection was for all men, especially the quickening, raising, and seating, was for all men to see that that same Christ that was in Jesus is the same Christ that's as us. No wonder he said, these things shall you do in greater, because I go into the Father. Why? Because the people were going to get into the inside and lay that pomegranate open and realize all the goods. You got the goods tonight. You just got to be laid open. We got to lay open what Jesus did, and we've got to see the proper aspect of the crucifixion, the death, the burial, the quickening, the raising, and the seating. 
Not that he came and did all that to take out a sinful nature, an Adamic identity, but that he came to reveal to us that we always were righteous and holy, and we never needed to get a nature change. I wrote a post the other day, and some of you read it, I know, because you liked it and shared it. But listen, now I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> what was I going to say? Anyone know what I was going to say? Anyhow, uh, I said something to the effect, I don't know what I was going to say. Go to Revelation 21. <laughs> I totally lost it. <laughs> I totally lost it. Yeah, but I wrote on a post something to the effect that, you see, we, we want to see... We want to see who we have always been in him and that the death, burial, and resurrection was not to take out a, oh, I know, thank God. <laughs> I said there that we need to understand what the word nature means and quit confusing it with awareness. Yeah. We, we say, well, this, this person has this nature and this person has another nature. We got the beastly nature. Well, you can operate out of a beastly nature. Yeah. Uh, not nature, I'm, I'm sorry, a beastly uh, way of thinking. Not na- that's not nature, though. No. You can operate out of an awareness, of a, a beastly awareness, but that doesn't change your nature, or that doesn't dictate to us that we have an Adamic nature or a sinful nature. We've always been who we've always been. Truth that is truly the truth has always been the truth. That won't cost you anything extra either. Now, in Revelation 21 and verse 14, and I'm not going to read there, but I just wanted you to be able to see. In verse 14, what we see there, and I taught this years ago when I first came down to Portland, probably close to 30 years ago. I taught on the 12 gates. Remember that? With the names of the 12 tribes on each of the gates. And I taught the 12 foundations that had, each of them had a different gem. And I taught you that written in the foundations, the 12 foundations, was the apostles, the names of the apostles of the Lamb. Now listen to this. In verse 20, it talks about the fifth foundation, and it says it was a sardonyx. Now listen to the meaning of a sardonyx. It consists of two things, kind of like twin. It's a wide opaque which cannot be seen through. And it is superimposed by a red transparent stratus of the true red sard. Now, what in the big round world does that mean? It means that this foundation stone had two layers to it. But the principle of this foundation stone with two layers was the two had become one. And you see, Thomas Didymus is the one, the only one that could fit that particular foundation stone, the sardonyx. Because it was what? It was two seen in Thomas's revelation as one. And that's what you get out of twin. Two as one with the same DNA. Not two as you would look at twins today. If we had twins in here, they'd, have, they'd both be different. They'd still have their individuality, uh, different personalities, I should say. But you know what? They both have the same DNA. And so what was happening here, the reason why it has to be Thomas in the fifth foundation is because it's the only foundation stone in Revelation 21 that had two aspects of it. And it was so overlaid by the other that you could not tell where one began and the other end or one end and the other began. And so therefore, that is what is true of Thomas. It was true of the other disciples. They just didn't become aware to it. They just didn't have the understanding. But what is it talking about? When we 
move beyond. It's hard to say this right because I know someone's going to get all bent out of shape and freak out over this. But listen, until we move beyond Jesus, the man, yes, follow him by doing what he said, yes, but he didn't want us to worship him, but he wanted us to worship the Christ, you see. And as we worship the Christ, we're worshiping him and we're worshiping the Father. But we've got to see the difference between Jesus, the man, he came to reveal the Father. And the Father was within him. And the Father is within us. He said, before Abraham was, I am. And then Jesus came. Yes, he was the Word made flesh. And yes, he was God made flesh. But just in the aspect of Jesus, the man, that said, I can't do anything, so don't ask me to do anything. See, you can see that by him saying that there's a difference. Don't ask me to do anything. I myself can do nothing, nothing. So don't ask me. It's the Father in me as me. You see, he was twin with the Father, you could say. Had the same DNA that the Father had in his physical aspect. So I said all that to say this. How could Thomas Didymus be a doubting Thomas? He moved, listen, he moved from believing to faith, and he moved into knowing. He moved into the fact of knowing. He knew that he knew that he knew. Listen, he realized and experienced that Jesus' crucifixion, his death, his burial, his quickening, his raising, and his seating. Now listen to this. Was First of all, the crucifixion, death, and burial was to get rid of a false concept. When Jesus said, it is finished, it means the baffling lie of self. Thinking that you are a fallen self rather than a self that has always been one with the Father from eternity to eternity. And he realized that the raising, the quickening and the raising and the being seated at the right hand was the revelation that showed us who we had always been that has to be quickened within us as we put our hand into the side. Figuratively, as we put our hand into the purpose, into the intent, into the understanding wow. of something in our awareness again. Amen. So, in one place, Thomas, in the calling order, the pecking order, or the calling order, was number seven. Another place he rises to two. And in the foundation stones, he's number five. And all of these numbers are significant. Seven means fullness, completion, and divine intervention. He had a divine intervention when he put his hand in two, you see. Number two, I've already talked about, is a true witness. He knew that he knew that he knew. He wasn't getting a second hand. He knew that he knew that he knew. And then number five means grace, but also the ancients knew it as sacrifice. And I'm going to use another word there because I'm not crazy about sacrifice. It's not a sacrifice for me to yield, to give my tithe, my 10% of what I would think in my, you know, just natural thinking. That's not a sacrifice. I joy to do that. I know what it's going to yield to me. So rather than us crucifying the left side, five senses, rather than a sacrifice, and in one sense of the word it is, but rather than that, it's a yielding, a submitting, yielding to 
It's the woman submitting to the husband. It's the feminine principle of our being just yielding to the masculine principle of our being. So what happened here is doubting Thomas, so-called, not. I used to believe that. Any of you believe that? Huh? Been there, done that, got the t-shirt, burned the t-shirt. Burn it, baby. <laughs> burned it. <laughs> but listen, Paul wanted to know him. He said in Philippians 3, Oh, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of the suffering. Enoch knew God. He walked with him and as him, I believe, 300 years. Job knew him. You know, Job, after he said all these things about his affliction and his suffering, he finally came to the place and said, I don't know nothing. Yeah. And it's recorded in the scriptures and he came to the place. Yeah. I don't know anything. But now I know him yeah. by the hearing of his voice. So Elijah knew him. Yep. Ruth knew Boaz, so Ruth knew him. Yep. The Shulamite knew him, yep. knew the king. Yep. And listen, in closing, Paul prayed oh. that we might know him Amen. in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. So Thomas, allegorically, is us desiring to see his appearing because we have a deeper revelation of just the man that walked the shores of Galilee. We are moving beyond the physical Jesus in that sense, not disowning or anything, you know, nothing like that. Because Jesus did go to the cross, and he did reveal something to us. But in other, in other words, uh, in order for him to reveal something to us, we've got to be like Thomas and get inside. So you've got to get inside. You have, to, you have to turn within if you're going to understand the scriptures at all. You've got to get within. What did, what did Jesus say about those who didn't understand the parables? They didn't understand them because they were without as opposed to within, as opposed to turning within, as opposed to looking at them through the single eye. Right. So Thomas was not a doubting Thomas. He identified as the twin of being birthed of the same DNA as Christ, so that makes him one and the same. Wow. That makes him one and the same. And he realized that his crucifixion and his death and his burial was about taking our it is finished. The baffling wind, the lies of religion, it, the baffling wind of who we thought we were, taking all of that and crucifying it, killing it, causing its death, and bearing it once and for all. And then in his quickening, what is quickened? The truth, which does what? Raises us up to see our oneness again, because we forgot it. And then causes us to be seated at the right. This is the throne. And we're seated on the throne, meaning what? We have rule, we have dominion over the left side. That's what it means to rule. It doesn't mean we're going to rule planets. You know, some people can't even keep their car clean. Oh, easy. Easy. I was just complaining on the way down here tonight how dirty my car was. But, you know, some of us can't even keep the dishes clean in the house. And we're going to rule planets. We're going to rule you know what it says in Revelation where it says, well, we will rule the nations? Shepherd the imaginations. Well, that's what it means, shepherd the imaginations, not rule people. Like, you better do what I tell you to do or else I'm cutting you out. No, no, no. 
He's not talking about that whatsoever. His resurrection reveals the truth of who we have always been. So Thomas knew the Christ on a level beyond just the physical man. He knew him on that physical realm as well, but he knew him even greater because he knew him on the inside. Because he had taken the time to put his hand into the intent and the purpose and to receive another way of thinking in his awareness. So don't ever, ever accuse Thomas of a doubting Thomas. I don't think you ever will anymore. After this message, you'll never call him a doubting Thomas again. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word, for your spirit that is quickening, making alive these truths, showing us who we have always been in you, revealing to us that truth that is really the truth has always been the truth about us. Thank you for this body. Thank you for Christ Jesus. Thank you for Jesus, the man that went to the cross and told us how to live and that as we follow him, we'll do what he said. We desire to do what he said. We desire to exercise the single eye, slip into the Christ mind. We desire the meditation, spontaneous, purposeful, whatever it is. We desire that, and Jesus told us to do that. But we're looking even beyond into the Christ that he was. His real being, his real identity was the Christ. And that's our identity tonight. We thank you. It's our true and only identity, and has always been. We thank you. We praise you in the name of the Lord. Amen, amen, amen.